Now, as we go to the word, would you pray with me? Father, bless this time. I pray for your Holy Spirit that I would preach in the power of the Holy Spirit with boldness. I ask that your Holy Spirit would work in my heart and the hearts of everyone listening. You'd overcome obstacles that Satan would not be able to blind anyone, that our hearts would not be hard, that we would not reject your word, but instead we would listen to it, believe it, and obey it. And I pray that you would do this work now as we look at your word. And it's in Jesus' name I ask, because of his precious blood, amen. Before I go to 1 Peter, I want to read a passage from Isaiah. A couple of weeks ago, I preached and talked about the fact that the prophets of the Old Testament looked forward to what God was going to do in Jesus. And I want to read a passage of Scripture that shows exactly that, that I believe will encourage you. So Isaiah chapter 55 begins this way. Come, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me, hear that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and a commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out of my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands, and instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress, and instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle, and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Now Isaiah wrote that to a people that were not experiencing the blessings of God. Isaiah wrote that to people who were being punished because of their unfaithfulness. And he promises a time when not only will God's people be blessed, but the invitation goes global. And so people all over the world hear what God is doing. 
And he says, come everyone who thirsts. To him who has no money, come and be satisfied with the goodness of God. It's an invitation that is open. When it says that my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord, but they're higher. Sometimes people are angry with God because they think that he's unfair. But the radical truth of the scripture is God is better than we could possibly imagine. And the complaint that might be leveled against God is that he's forgiving guilty people. When we look at someone that we believe is guilty, we long for nothing but justice for them. And God says, my ways are higher than your ways. And in God's infinite love and infinite mercy, he doesn't overlook sin and pretend it doesn't exist. He makes a way to pardon the guilty. And what you read about in the book of Isaiah, you could appreciate that until Jesus came, it was not possible to fully understand it. But when Peter is writing to first century Christians who had heard about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, he's saying this is what the prophets were talking about. They longed to look into these things. And the message that he's writing to people who had been moved out of their homes, who were living not knowing what the future held for them, They didn't fit into the city that they lived in. They weren't citizens. They didn't have the benefits of what we would hope for in life. Peter reminds them of what God has begun thousands of years before any of them were born and gives them a hope that in their suffering, God has a purpose and a plan that will not fail. And my point this morning as we go to the book of 1 Peter, and I would encourage you to turn there, is this. Peter has been addressing Christians, and so I am mostly going to address Christians. If you wouldn't call yourself that today, that's fine. I'm thrilled that you're listening to this message. But I am going to be addressing primarily Christians, because that's what Peter is doing. And he tells these ancient believers who are displaced all over the ancient world, He says, since you have believed in Jesus, you must love one another. And you love one another especially by growing in your faith. I'm going to say that again. Since you have believed in Jesus, love one another. And love one another especially by growing in your faith. You know, we have a lot of ideas about what love is. And I think especially in 21st century American culture, we would define love many times as breaking from traditional Christianity. We would say it's loving to accept someone as they are and to not be so judgmental, to not apply the scriptures so literally to people today. But Peter says the exact opposite is true. If you have believed in Jesus, do love one another, but love one another especially by growing in your faith. And so I want to ask you in a very pointed way at the beginning of this message, has God ever asked you in particular to do anything? 
Have you ever felt like God told you to do something? Now, that might seem like a strange question. For those of you who are like, yes, he has, there are a lot of people that say, you're crazy. Most people, even if they believe that God exists, don't believe that he speaks today. And yet, the truth is, Scripture says he speaks in three different ways, and everyone has heard him speak in one of those ways. God has spoken to us in creation. He has spoken with great beauty and great power. You know, I was watching a goofy video on YouTube. My brother sent me about squirrels, and it was funny and quirky, and and the reality is we have a God who made these Goofy, little, cute, frustrating animals. And God speaks to us through his creation. We can learn things about him. As you study science and and appreciate the vastness of the universe, the sheer magnitude and size of it says, there's something bigger than me. There's something beyond my ability to grasp and understand. And God is speaking constantly, day after day, the scripture says, Psalm 90, the heavens declare the glory of God. No one can say, I don't know, I haven't heard. But the heavens will not tell you about Jesus. And so there's another way that God speaks. He also speaks, at times, very clearly, through the Holy Spirit. So there are times when people, as they seek the Lord, I believe especially in His Word, God speaks to them through the Holy Spirit in a personal way, and they understand God has told me what to do. Now there are times that people have been led astray by that. I don't want to get into a debate about this, but the Scriptures are clear. There are times the Holy Spirit, like when He sets aside Paul and Barnabas in the early church, says, you are going to be missionaries for me. They didn't go, you know, I don't find a Bible verse about that. They believed that the Holy Spirit had set them apart, and they went. So the Holy Spirit speaks, but he doesn't speak to everyone the way that God speaks to everyone in nature. So I believe that there are times when you're going to hear him clearly, but if you want to know what God has said to you, maybe you could say, you know, I've never experienced that. I don't know that God has spoken to me that way. And it might be true. Perhaps he has not. But here is one way that God speaks with absolute clarity that you cannot doubt, He speaks through His Word with amazing, abundant clarity. And here's the challenge. It's easy to feel like this book was written a long time ago to different people, so it doesn't have anything to do with me. These words just kind of fly right past. And that is not true. God has very clearly written His Word And he has written it for your benefit. And he has told you what he requires of you. So 100% of the people here can say with absolute clarity, God has spoken to me. In fact, as I read the words of scripture, God is speaking to you right now. And you can know that this word has authority in your life. And it is a word that will bless you. It is a word that is for your good and not for your harm. And when you hear things that are painful and hard that you do not like, even then it is a word that is good for you. His word is a direct message from God Almighty. And if you want the short version of what this giant book says... The message of God in His Word 
is a message of grace and peace. That's how Peter begins this book. He says, grace and peace be multiplied to you. Grace means getting something that you didn't earn, you didn't deserve. God isn't just playing favorites and saying, oh, I like these people. They're pretty good at the things that I like, so I'm going to just shower them with blessings. No, he goes out and finds the guilty people, the unfaithful people, and he showers them with mercy. And it's to show his great love and his great mercy that he pardons the ungodly. And peace Peace is not just the absence of conflict. You know, the absence of conflict, you could be getting the cold shoulder, right? But peace is the enjoyment of God's presence and His blessing. And Peter prays for those who have trusted in Christ that grace and peace would be multiplied to them, that they wouldn't just understand that their sins are forgiven, but that they would live in the experience of God's grace and peace in a multiplied way. More and more they would be persuaded of God's love. More and more they would understand that every good and perfect gift comes from above. So whether you're looking at a squirrel in your backyard or whether you're enjoying a hot cup of coffee in the morning, it's a message from God that says, I love you. I'm giving you good things all the time. And the more you can understand His grace in your life, the more you will appreciate the peace He's given to you in Christ Jesus. God's message of grace and peace begins like this. The whole scriptures say that we must repent of our sins because King Jesus is coming to rule and reign. The scriptures urge repent before it's too late and you remain an enemy of the King. The scriptures say to repent because God in His infinite love is granting pardon, amnesty for guilty rebels. It is the message that Jesus told the apostles to proclaim. Jesus is himself God. And if God is saying to someone else, say these words, they are speaking a message from God. And as the apostles write the words of Jesus down, we can say with absolute certainty, God is speaking to me through these words, through this message. This is a message That does not change if you are in Hong Kong or Hawaii. It doesn't change if you're young or if you're old, if you're black, if you're white. It doesn't change if you're a man or if you're a woman or if you're rich or if you're poor. The message is the same. Repent because God loves you and sent His Son to die in your place. And He's offering you forgiveness. And He's offering you a place in His family and in His kingdom. And so the question is, have you believed the message and have you obeyed The message. And most importantly, remember a minute ago I said, it's easy to hear the verses of Scripture. Maybe you doubt whether or not they're true. Maybe you don't think that they apply to you. Maybe you think that you know better than the people who believe this as to be the Word of God. The question is, how can you be certain that you benefit from God's mercy and grace if you don't listen to the message that is in this book? See, Peter is reminding his readers, if you've heard the past messages from this series, he's reminding his readers whose world is falling apart. Probably they have been kicked out of Rome where they all used to live because of persecution of both Jews and Christians. And Peter is reminding these persecuted, misplaced people that God has called them 
He has caused them to be born again to new life in Jesus. And God has guaranteed an inheritance for them that God is working through their trials so that as their faith is tested, it is purified. And more and more, they look forward to meeting Jesus face to face. And so as we read these verses, the question is, how can we be certain that the same thing is true of us? That we have been born again? That we have an inheritance that is incorruptible, that cannot be taken away? How can we be certain that we have a good future when people are getting sick and dying and hospitals are full and the election is blowing up and people are afraid of riots? How can we be confident that there is a good future? When we read verses like this, How do we make certain that they apply to us? And so I want to remind you again of the point of this message. Peter writes that because God has saved them, in other words, he helps them have confidence that they are indeed saved, that they really are Christians. Because God has saved them, he tells his readers to live holy lives. And that holiness in their lives begins to add to their assurance so that they grow in confidence that these good things that are promised really will be given to them. And so I'll remind you again, the point of this message is that since you have believed in Jesus, you are to love one another, especially by growing through your faith. So To begin with, I want to point you to verses 17 through 21. I've given you the context of the passage. Now let me read these verses and show how believing in Jesus helps us have this confidence, helps us know that our future is certain and secure. Peter writes and says, And if you call on Him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot." He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Now I want to say two things. The major point here is that we believe through Jesus Christ. You don't pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. God has spoken to you first in the person and work of Jesus Christ, and the message of Jesus has come down to you through the scriptures and through people who faithfully preach that good news, whether it's from a pulpit or over a kitchen table or at a bedside, you know, as your mom was with you as a little kid, as someone told you that good news and pointed you to what Jesus had done, You are a believer through Jesus Christ. But that's not the first thing that Peter said in these verses. The first thing he said was, if you are confident of this, and if you understand that God has told you to live a holy life, even though you have the assurance that your sins are forgiven, he said, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Why? Because... You call on God as your father, and God is a judge who impartially judges according to each one's deeds. In other words, Peter is saying, you've been welcomed into the family of God. God is your father, 
And so you need to behave understanding that God is an impartial judge. Live your life now, even with all this uncertainty and chaos, in a kind of holy fear of the Lord. And this is an idea that I think we wrestle with a lot. It's it's something that someday, God willing, I would love to write a book on. But for now, I just want to focus on this verse right here. And I want you to think about a loving father and how you might fear a loving father. And I talked with Rosie a little bit before this message, and I asked her if it was okay to share this. And she said, yeah, it's okay. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about the past week. Every night this past week, at some point in the night, it might have been 2 o'clock one night, it might have been 5 o'clock the next, 5 a.m. really, uh, uh, Rosie has made the trip from her bedroom to my bedroom and said, Daddy, I I had a bad dream. Or, Daddy, there is a spider. Or, Daddy, I'm afraid. And so because of her fear, she came to the father that she knows loves her. Now, don't be confused. Peter is saying, understand that we need to fear the Lord. She's not coming to me because she's afraid of me. She's coming to me because she's afraid of something else, and she knows that I'm good, and she knows that I'll help her. So the most important thing to understand is that we come to God because he is good, and he rescues us from the great evils of this life. But here's the other side of fearing a father who loves you is that sometimes a loving father exercises discipline. A good and a loving father will faithfully sometimes say, go back to bed. And sometimes that is not pleasant. And sometimes the child that came to you because they know that you love them bursts into tears and says, but daddy! And there is an understanding That because we want everyone to sleep, and because all the spiders are dead, it's okay to go back to your bed and go back to sleep for a few more hours. And so there's a kind of fear of daddy, where if you don't listen and obey daddy, you do get in trouble. And what Peter is saying, you've come to God as father. You understand that the father saves you and loves you. Now conduct your life in holy fear, knowing that your good Father will judge your works. And as you sometimes disobey and sometimes sin, God will call you to account for your sin, not because He's mean, but because He's a good Father who loves you. And so He's exhorting people who have already believed on Jesus to live a holy life. And do not miss this. Peter commands holy living not as a way to please God, not as a way to go to heaven. Peter commands holy living as a result of what Christ has done for you. The truth of biblical Christianity is that Jesus has died for your sins and risen from the dead, and grace is given to guilty people to cleanse them from their sin, and then they are called to live in holy obedience. That's the only thing that Christianity has that's truly different from every other religion in the world. Every other religion says, do these things and hopefully you'll be okay. Christianity says, it's hopeless to even try. Jesus has done it for you. And in his power, now begin to obey. And he will give you the power 
to obey. Notice Peter's emphasis. After he says that you are to conduct yourselves with fear, he says, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with imperishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. In other words, you fear and you obey and you strive to be holy knowing that you've already been redeemed, you are already loved. And so when you fail, you go back to the Father and ask for His grace. And when you struggle to obey, you ask for the power and you obey, even when it's hard and even when you don't want to, even when it's unpopular, even when people will call you a bigot, you understand that God has called you to holiness and your Father loves you. And even when it's hard, you obey. Peter says that you know you were redeemed by something permanent. You weren't bought from a slave market with money that might run out. You were bought from the slavery of sin with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, the infinite, eternal, perfectly pure Son of God. You think about the greatness of God's love, that He was willing to sacrifice His Son in your place. Peter says, no, that that was the cost of your ransom. He's not guilt-tripping you. He's saying your salvation is so solid and so secure that you can walk with confidence. And he says that the way that you believed was that through Jesus Christ, specifically because God raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. You know, this is a really big book, and I would strongly encourage you to study it and know it. But the simple message is really short. Christ died for your sins and rose from the dead. There is no victory that is greater than being raised up to life after being publicly crucified. When God talks about glory, he's talking about that awesome. It's greater than any magic trick that you've ever seen. It's greater than anything that would cause you to go, how did he do that? The only answer is God's power is on display in bringing the dead back to life. Scripture says that death could not hold him. It had no power over Jesus Christ. That's his greatness. That's his goodness. And as you hear this and as, as the Holy Spirit works in your heart and you begin to believe, oh my goodness, God is really that powerful. The things that happen to Jesus Christ aren't just stories, but they're history. And you can read about them even outside the Bible. And you can know that Jesus Christ really lived and really died and really rose from the dead. And if your faith is in the power of God and you understand God's goodness, that He breaks the power of sin, that He breaks this curse, that He pardons the guilty, that's how you know what God is like. And that's where your faith lies. And the only reason you know that God is like that is because he sent his son to live on earth in history so that people saw him and people lived with him and people touched him. That's how the apostle John writes in 1 John, that which we've seen, that which we've heard, that which we touched, this really happened. And as he commissioned people to write it down and tell it and to tell it to other people, they've faithfully been telling the story of Jesus for 2,000 years. And all around the world, people have believed. So their hope is in God because of what happened in the person of Jesus Christ. And so to begin with, you know that you have a secure future and a secure hope because of what God has done in Jesus Christ. 
Because you have that certainty, Peter says, live a holy life. And then he describes how that holy life begins starting in verse 22. So we talked about believing in Jesus. This is the first way that you know that you have this future. This is the first way that you know that you have this hope. Not only do you believe in Jesus, but you were born again by the word, and that's in the past. So look at verse 22 through 25 and listen carefully to how Peter describes how this happens. Peter says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. These verses are dynamite. There is so much here. But I want to point out just a couple of things. First, Peter describes that the goal of being born again is loving one another. That's part of the purpose that God has saved you. He takes broken people who hate each other and he puts them in the same family and teaches them to love each other. If our country seems very broken over race right now, it's very much like what the ancient world felt like between Jews and Gentiles and their hatred towards one another. Gentiles, the Jews thought were dirty, disgusting people, and the Jews thought, excuse me, the Gentiles thought that the Jews were crazy, self-righteous, and smug, and they both were probably right to an extent. And God in his mercy saved both of them and put them together in the same family and healed racial divisions. If things seem hopeless, they're not because God offers us the same grace and the same power to heal deep and broken divisions today. But it begins by having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. Now think about this for just a minute. Peter has been using imagery from the Old Testament, from the story of Exodus, when God rescued his people. Remember a second ago he said that Jesus was a pure lamb? The story of Exodus, God is pouring out his judgment on the Egyptians who have been enslaving and abusing God's people for 400 years. He pours out his judgment and wrath in plagues, and in the final plague he says, your firstborn son will die unless you obey, and Pharaoh will not let the people go. And so God sends an angel of death to carry out his terrible justice on the people of Egypt. And the surprising part of the story is that he tells his people that they must slaughter a lamb and put some of its blood on the doorpost of their houses or they will fall under the same judgment. And the blood of the lamb preserves them from the judgment of God. And Peter is saying, Jesus is the blood of the Lamb. And so, for the ancient people of God, when they heard the message of Moses that was true, they had to obey the truth. It wasn't enough for them to go, oh, God is pouring out his judgment on Egypt tonight. I agree. That wasn't enough. If you just agreed with the message but didn't do anything the death angel would have visited your house and your family would have been in terrible grief as your firstborn son died. 
And you understood that God's judgment and justice applies to everyone. But if you obeyed the truth, you put his instructions in practice. You slaughtered the lamb. You roasted it according to the specific instructions. And you put the blood on the doorpost of your house and you stayed inside. And so the obedience to the truth resulted in the salvation of God's people. Well, it's the same theory, the same way. When you hear God is going to judge sin, there's coming a time when it will be too late. You must obey the truth. You don't just think, oh, this Jesus guy, he's an interesting person. You don't think, you know, I I like some of his teaching. You recognize that God speaking to you is saying, I will judge your sin. But there is a way out. My son Jesus died in your place. Trust in his blood for you. Believe and be baptized. Now, baptism doesn't save you, but it's how you put the truth of your faith in action. If you understand the good news of Jesus and you say, but I don't really need to do anything about it, you are not putting your faith in action. And you're like an Israelite saying, I believe in the promises of God, but you don't slaughter the lamb. You're not putting your faith in action. James says, show me your faith by what you do. And so if you claim to have a private sort of belief, but your faith does not live itself out in your life, the scripture would warn that you have not actually purified yourself, that you are not actually a believer. And so Peter says, purify your souls by your obedience to the truth. Do the things God has commanded you, not to earn his favor, but because of what Christ has done for you. And to begin with, you need to be baptized to show that you're trusting that Christ's death was for you and that the life that you now live is the life that he has given you. And so I want to issue an open invitation. If you've never been baptized, I believe that God is telling you, you should be. If you believe that Jesus is the Savior, if he is the one who died for your sins and rose from the dead, I want to invite you to be baptized. I want to encourage you to talk to me today. But that's not the only way that you obey the truth. As you begin to understand that Christ died for your sins and rose from the dead, you have to agree with God about what sin is. So if you feel like, you know, I love some of Jesus' teachings, but I'm not crazy about all of them, you have no right to make that judgment. You are putting yourself above God saying, I know what's true and I will discern where you're right and where you're wrong. And that has nothing to do with someone who has humbled himself before God and committed to obeying the truth. When you begin that process, when you believe that Jesus died for you and rose from the dead, And when you put your faith in action and follow him obediently in baptism, you begin a life of constant obedience. And that life, Peter says, leads to loving other people. In fact, he makes it sound like that's the goal of salvation. To be brought into a family where you love one another and you love God perfectly. Peter says that By your obedience to truth, the purpose is for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart 
since you have been born again. Now, it's easy to think, you know, I love people. It's easy to think, you know, I've got a loving church because you can identify a few friends that you love. But the test of love is when there are disagreements and when it seems easier to find a church where you fit in better. We ought not avoid people that we don't like. Peter is saying, love one another. Not the people that you automatically get along with. Not the people that agree with you politically. Not the people that agree with you socially. Love the people that it's not normal to love. He's writing to a mixed congregation of both Jews and Gentiles. The ancient church was very tempted to set up Jewish congregations and Gentile congregations. And God will not tolerate it and will not have it. And so the urgency in our church is to deepen our love. That's why I prayed for it this morning in my pastoral prayer, that even during this time where we don't see each other very much, that God would increase our affections for each other. That when I look at you, I would see a saint that has been forgiven by God, that is loved by God, and that if you hurt me, I will forgive you. And that if I hurt you, you will forgive me. And we will make it a point to spend time with each other and to love one another, to take care of each other's needs. Peter says this is the point of the gospel. So many people say things like, you know, I'm a follower of Jesus, but I don't, I don't love the church. You can't do that. Because the whole point of being a follower of Jesus is to love the people that Jesus called you to love. If you isolate yourself... You're taking the easy way out. You're not putting in practice the sincere brotherly love. He says brotherly love because it's a family love. It's not just I love all people everywhere, which probably isn't true anyway. It's a special love for being part of the church and seeking to grow closer and closer together as we meet each other's needs. Saints, we've got people that don't have physical family as part of our church. And it's our obligation to love them. There should not be lonely people here. We should be faithful to be making phone calls and for those who are comfortable, face-to-face visits, writing notes. These are practical expressions of love that everyone in here can do. It's not about the pastor doing all of it. I want to make sure that I do my part, but it's about the whole congregation faithfully loving one another. And, And saints, here's one of the challenges. Some of you in here have been part of this church for 50, 60, 70 years. And as new people come into the church, you have an obligation to love the new people as well as the old people. You can't say, you know, I've got my friends and, and this, is the, this is the crowd where we've been here forever. That's dividing the church based on some sort of tiered status. We are brother and sister, not father, mother, granddaughter, grandson. It, it doesn't work that way. We are all sons and daughters of God. There's only one generation in the church. And so our goal ought to be to love one another because all of us got in here the exact same way. And the reason that he gives is because the word of God is secure. Now that might seem bizarre. Love one another because the word of God is secure. What does that have to do with anything? Well, he's telling you, You are free to love other people in reckless, sacrificial ways because God's promises to you will not fail. The reason you can love people that it seems like you ought to hate is because God has forgiven you and saved you by his word, and because of his love for you, 
you can risk everything in loving the people who are a part of your church. When he says, all flesh is like grass and all its glory like a flower grass, grass withers and flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Notice what he says next. This word is the good news that was preached to you. So how did you become a Christian? Well, you heard the good news of Jesus. You heard it preached, and that word was planted in your heart. The word that won't come back void is now at work in you, and you have confidence that you are saved, and God's purpose in you is to create a loving person who loves other people in the church where he placed you. If you have conflict, don't go somewhere else. Trust that the word of God that's active in you is active in your brothers and sisters, and it's God's will that you work through the conflict and love one another. And if you begin to despair and feel like there's bickering and division and people are are tribalistic, have confidence in the word of God that will not fail. That God is going to build his church the same way he always had through the preaching of the gospel. And if we are believers, the word is making us love one another because that's what the word does as it purifies our hearts as we obey the truth. See, the word saves me and then the word helps me understand my sin and the word changes me into a saint in the image of Jesus. So the longer I'm a believer, hopefully the easier it is to get along with me And the more we have mature believers in our church, the deeper our fellowship would be. And saints, the more mature you are as a believer, the more excited and enthusiastic you'll be with irritating infants who drive you crazy. You won't be like, oh, there's a bunch of new people around here. You'll be thrilled to death that there are new people around here. You'll be the first person to extend a handshake, maybe with a glove, I don't know, You'll be the first person to put a smile from behind your mask on. Saints, not only are we born again by the word, we are changed by the word. And so in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, Because of all this, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. How do you taste that the Lord is good? It's when the Holy Spirit does a work in your heart and in your life and you begin to believe the truth of the gospel so that you begin to obey the gospel. Peter says, if you've done that, then put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy. You know, It's funny that he mentions hypocrisy. So many people are convinced that the church is full of hypocrites because the church kind of is full of hypocrites. And the reality is, it always has been. Peter wouldn't have had to say that if hypocrisy wasn't an issue in the first century church. But as believers grow, they are to put away these things. How do you do that? He gives us a a key here. And this is what I want to challenge you with. This is what I want to leave you with. You remember I said that the point of this message is, is that Because you have been redeemed, you are to love one another, and you do that by growing in your faith and being changed by the word. So he says, like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. What is he talking about? Well, he's talking about the same word that he has been describing. You become a Christian by hearing the word preached and believing it and obeying the word. 
You grow as a Christian by hearing the word preached and believing it applies directly to you and obeying it. So if you're not a believer, the thing that you ought to do is fall on your knees, confess your sins, and be baptized. And if you are a believer, you ought to seek to listen to the word more and more, but it's more than that. It's deeper than that. I believe Peter describes drinking this milk because there's more to it than just reading your Bible, although it's not less I would encourage you, make sure you read at least one verse every single day. If you want help with that, I would love to be able to assist you in doing that. But he says, grow in godliness by drinking this pure spiritual milk. What is that? Well, I believe part of it is just spending time with other Christians. Part of it is listening to good things like good Christian music. And part of it is learning to talk to your Savior through prayer. Part of it is singing Even for those of you who can't sing well, sing. Sing loud when you're by yourself. And yes, absolutely, spend time reading the Word, even if it's just a little bit every single day. Be intentional to grow in the new life that you've got. Now, I want to say some stuff very directly to our church. It can be frustrating dealing with immature Christians. And it can be frustrating. I was asked when I was on the search committee over four years ago, so you're a young guy. How do you pastor people who are 50 and 60 years older than you? And I said, well, part of it, part of it is recognizing that some of these saints, they might not know the scriptures as well because they haven't been able to go to college. They might not have read them as carefully, but they've walked with Jesus for decades. And I have not because at the time I was only 33. I'd known the Lord for maybe 20 years. I guess if you think back when I was saved, probably a little longer than 20 years. But because I hadn't lived an entire life with him, there were ways that I didn't know him well. And so I had knowledge, but maybe not maturity all the time. And that's still true. I have knowledge, but sometimes without maturity. Saints, it's possible to have a kind of relationship with the Lord that maybe is immature in knowledge, but is very deep in terms of trust. And I want to encourage us that as as believers that God has called together and knit together in this place, in First Baptist Church of Holly, that no matter where you're at, you would commit to growing in the Lord, that you would commit to growing in His Word, but most importantly for this message, that you would commit to growing in love for the people of your church, whether you know them or not. So that this could be a growing fellowship where the love of God is obvious. And I want to ask if you would make a serious commitment to growth today. Would you be in the Word more? Would you make it a point to talk to people that maybe you don't know as well as you should? You know, sometimes I mention names of people who have been here for around a couple of years, and people say, who? And we're not that big of a church. We ought to be intentional about growing together. And, and maybe one way to put that in practice is just to stay after service and eat with us next week. You don't have to attend the business meeting, although maybe you should. But I want to encourage you, spend some time with the people of our fellowship so that we can grow in depth and love for one another as people who have been saved by the word of God. Would you pray with me? Father, we have heard your word and what it can do. I pray that we would one day praise you for what it has done as we listened to it and obeyed it. God, I pray that you would teach us to be obedient to all of it. Help us to be faithful and diligent in loving one another. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Just sing with me.
As I dismiss you this morning, I want to encourage you with some words of Paul to the Thessalonians. So much of the scripture says the same thing in different ways, and I want to encourage you to have confidence in the word that Peter says it's not going to fail. Like Isaiah says, it's not going to return void. If God has begun a good work in you, have confidence that he will finish it. And if God has begun a good work in his church, be confident that he will finish it in his church. And so Paul writes in very similar ways, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Go in peace. Thank you.